0: Welcome to the Filipino American Woman Project, also known as TIFA Project for short, a podcast show that features stories and life lessons told by American women of Filipino descent.
1: We're your co-hosts, Jen Amos. And I'm Nani Dominguez. And thank you for joining us. If today's conversation resonates with you, text us and let us know at 415-484-8329. And if you want to show
0: us some love, buy us boba at buymeacoffee.com forward slash
1: Jen and Nani. It says coffee, but we love boba. Again, that's www.buymeacoffee.com slash Jen and Nani. Awesome. With that said, thank you all for your love and support. Now let's get into the show.
0: Hello, hello, everybody. Jen Amos here. Currently, your host for the Filipino American Woman Project. Although, today, if you are missing Nani, have no fret because this is a pre recording that we did with her a couple of weeks ago with an incredible guest that you'll have the fortune of learning about in a couple of minutes here. But before I get into that, I just wanted to give some quick announcements. Some of you have been following my journey since I started to do solo episodes back in episode 120. I just want to thank you all for showing your support. And, you know, whether it's through sending me messages, emails, text messages, even personal messages, it means so much to just have the support that I have on the show. And so I just want to send you all some virtual hugs and love and also for supporting us on biasboba.com. I had mentioned in the last episode, episode 122 that starting November, after Filipino American History Month, which takes place in October, but starting November, Nani and I are going to go on a winter break. And if you want to continue to hear us in the off-season, we are encouraging you all to buy us a cup of boba on BiasBoba.com. And I want to give a quick shout out to Rachel, who in the last couple of days bought us five cups of boba. So Rachel, thank you so much. You all have to check out her very elaborate (laughs) comment on BiasBoba.com. And so thank you for your support, Rachel. We are about 15 cups of boba away from guaranteeing a bonus episode in the off-season. So if you want to be a part of that, if you want to hear Nani and I in the off-season starting November, support us on biasboba.com. So Rachel, shout out to you. You know you're amazing. I talk about you a lot now. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, as always. We love you here at the Tifa Project. The next thing I wanna share is that we have an original episode that we've done on Chismas with Jen and Ani, which you have access to if you become a member on BiasBoba.com. So as a reminder, a difference between someone buying us a cup of boba on BiasBoba.com versus being a member is that when you buy us a cup of boba, that's usually like a one-time contribution, which we're extremely grateful for. But if you want to continue to support us, you become a member. And so that's pretty much a monthly commitment on BiasBoba.com. And when you become a member you have exclusive access to our private show called Chismas with Jen and Nani. And so we released an original episode last week. And so I'm just going to play a quick snippet, a little tease for you to get a hint at what our discussion is about. And obviously, if you want to hear more, we encourage you to join us on biasboba.com. Also, if you do support us as a member on biasboba.com between now and November, there's a higher probability that Nani and I will release a bonus episode in the off-season. So, without further ado, here is a quick clip on our original episode that Nani and I did last Friday on Chismas with Jen and Nani. Hello, everyone. I'm Jen Amos. And as always, I have my co host with me, Nani Dominguez. Welcome to Chismas with Jen and Nani.
1: Yay. Welcome to our private podcast, you guys. If you're here, that means that you are one of our most appreciated and loved supporters. And yes, we're so glad to be here with you today.
0: Yeah. So we are being quite candid today. We don't really have an agenda other than to talk about Jen's personal life, (laughs) but we're (laughs) thinking about keeping this within an hour and then maybe do some to be continued. But, you know, I just thought this would be important for people who want to learn more about the backstory of the Filipino American Woman Project, as well as even my own personal journey. As much as I am very fortunate to, you know, have been on other podcast shows and do interviews and share my story, I don't think I'm going to share as much as I have on those shows the way that I'm going to do in our conversation today because I have Nani with me. And Nani has been a part of my journey for the majority of this podcast show. And she has seen and heard a lot of the things that have happened behind the scenes. And there is a lot that goes on behind the show. I mean, I've always kind of been this way where I get a lot of satisfaction in interviewing other people even before I started podcasting. Like I always just wanted to genuinely get to know people. But I think lately I've been doing it more so on purpose to not deal with my own personal issues. So I figured this is a great opportunity for us to you know, for you all to come here and hang out with us for a little bit of um, only exclusive here on Christmas with Jen and Nani to learn more about us on a deeper level. But I really don't know how I want to approach this, Nani. So I need your help. Yeah. <laughs> so any initial thoughts from you and the fact that we're going to start these series of us just kind of talking and sharing what's going on in our lives and behind the scenes of the Tifa project?
1: Yeah, well, just to give a little bit of context, Jen and I are not just colleagues that work together on this podcast and the media projects that we work on that have kind of spun off in result of the Tifa project. We also have like a personal relationship. I call her Ate for a reason, you know, and I'm really appreciative to have her to either text or call or ping on Slack. However, we communicate these days, you know, when I need to vent or when I need to talk or vice versa, you know, for her to call me in those moments where she needs someone to lean on for support. Also, I'm really, really grateful for that and just the relationship that we have. And I think that a lot of you guys have been curious of what that kind of looks like behind the scenes when we're not in our non-productive time together, (laughs) what our relationship looks like. And so as she kind of touched on over the last Year Well, really two years since, you know, I joined her on the Tifa project. She's obviously been through a lot. We all have, you know, it was a (laughs) fucking pandemic. So (laughs) for one, for starters, you know, not that that's what is going to be the basis of our conversation today, but a lot has happened and there have been a lot of those private moments that we've shared together and wanted to highlight some of those like reoccurring themes that keep coming up in Jen's life for you, our audience and our community, because we think that these are things that a lot of people experience in the Panay community specifically. And just because we have created this kind of safe haven for ourselves here to have those conversations openly and candidly and unpack kind of the impact of our interactions with other people who, whether they're our friends or our family or people we went to school with, work with, et cetera, just people that have had kind of a negative impact on us, we have to also acknowledge that that is the world, you know, that we live in. And that is kind of the dynamic that our culture thrives on. And as much as we're normalizing that with our podcast and with the work that we do, it still very much is alive and exists. And so we do have to deal with it from time to time. And I think that spending so much time here in this space where it does feel safe to talk about those things and just be, you know, real. We also have to learn how to meet people where they're at and we can't hold everyone to that same expectation, especially if they are not part of the TIFA community. So at least I hope that's a good overview.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I definitely had, again, this is a very like non-agenda conversation, just one objective in mind and I just appreciate everything that you shared and we are very familiar with the crab mentality we're familiar with competition with comparison we're familiar with all the negative aspects of being in this community the you know lack of boundaries that we give each other you know the almost abusive way that people use family to say we're family we're family but you know that also means I can abuse you in certain ways whether it's yeah. verbal physical financial you know economic Economical, et cetera. We are aware of all of that. And, you know, I, myself, I have experienced just as many of us have like many issues within the community, such as being bullied and, you know, even just abuse within my own family. But the reason why we can do the show and continue to do the show 100 plus episodes later, even creating the spinoff, just miss which and Nani, is because I realized that This is never going to go away. Like, I will never not be Filipino, even if I deny it. Even if I am in, let's say, a white dominated community, people will always ask me, Where am I from? No, really, where am I from? (laughs) You know, and people will expect for me to speak about my culture. And so, you know, there's no running away from who I am. So I might as well lean into this and lean into the good, the bad, the ugly of our community. And the last announcement that I have to share is that in these pre-recorded episodes that we were fortunate to do before Nani had given birth, we talked a lot about our newsletter and how we would release it on a weekly basis. And as you may have noticed, if you are a subscriber, we haven't sent out a newsletter in a while. And the reason why you haven't received those newsletters is because it's usually Nani, that's the one that's writing them and managing them. And I usually, you know, do the final review and then send them out. And since Nani is enjoying this new season of motherhood, we haven't had those newsletters sent out. However, if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter yet, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you subscribe because when we are back, you're going to hear all of the amazing updates you know, from Nani, everything that's going on with her, and maybe some other exciting announcements when we do put our newsletter out there again. So, even though we are not actively pushing them out there, I highly encourage that you subscribe. You can do so by checking out the show notes of this episode or visiting our website, tifaproject.com. All right, and that's all I have to share for today. Without further ado, please enjoy this amazing, amazing conversation, this pre-recorded one that we did back in July, I believe, 2021. And so even though I am still flying solo here on the Tifa Project, you will have the fortune of hearing Nani's amazing voice again as we interview Bless Chavez Bernstein, singing poet, author, and soprano. She also is the author of two books, one memoir, her memoir, which is titled In the Typhoon's Eye, as well as a collection of poems, which is titled Without Rhyme. All right, without further ado, please enjoy. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Filipino American Woman Project. I am your creator and co-host, Jen Amos. And as always, I have my incredible co-host, Nani
1: Dominguez. Nani, welcome back. Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tifa.
0: Yes, and we are excited to dive into our conversation today. But before we do, just some quick housekeeping things. I know in the intro, we mentioned our phone number. I'll just mention it again, because if this conversation resonates with you, feel free to shoot us a text or leave us a voice message at 415-484-8329. Again, that's 415-484-8329. Of course, if you are not comfortable with texting us right away, all good. You can also email us at jen at tifaproject.com, as well as nani at tifaproject.com. Remember, we also have our academic paper available called Panai Podcasters. Go ahead and read it now by visiting PanaiPodcasters.com. It's also an opportunity for you to get a sneak peek into our exclusive community, Just Miss and Nani. Just visit PanaiPodcasters.com and you'll get all the information there as well. And I think that's it, Nani. Oh, let's talk about the newsletter because you know we like to spend our time on there. I don't know if we're planning on uh, maybe at this point we're doing a bi weekly newsletter, Nani, but go ahead and share with the audience a little bit about, you know, the significance of our newsletter and if we are scaling. Back at this point, why are we doing that?
1: Yeah. So Jen and I both have a lot going on in our personal lives, which you can learn about more on Chismas with Jen and Nani when you subscribe on biasboba.com. So yeah, basically the newsletter is our way of keeping in touch with you guys these days. And instead of interacting directly with you on social media, or we know a lot of you guys send us, you know, personal emails or text messages on our Google voice number, like Jen was saying, and even some voice messages as of mm-hmm. lately. So thank you for that. I know Jen is super <laughs> excited to get those. Yes. Those are kind of the three main ways that we are keeping in touch with you guys and keeping a pulse on our pinai community and just sharing a bunch of resources, news, messages, you know, personalizing it as much as possible for you guys. So that is the way that you can get in touch with us and keep in touch with us and see what's going on, what's coming up on the TIFA project, as well as Chismas with Jen and Nani as of late these days.
0: Yes. And just like what Nani said, because of our personal lives being as chaotic and exciting as it has been as of late, we might be pulling back from, you know, instead of doing a weekly newsletter to a bi-weekly newsletter. So that way it'll give you two weeks to catch up. And especially if you don't read them every week, you know, now you have two weeks to read our newsletters at a time. Awesome. Okay, that's it. And of course, you can check the show notes of this episode or visit our website, tfawproject.com if you want to subscribe to our newsletter. All right. Well, without further ado, I really just wanted to get the housekeeping out of the way because, Nani, we have another exciting conversation today here in our TIFA community. So let me go ahead and bring our guest on. Her name is Bless Chavez Bernstein, and she is known as the singing poet, soprano and she is an author of two books that we'll mention today one of them is a collection of 100 poems called within rhyme which was published in 2014 and we have a memoir that she also published called in the typhoon's eye so really excited to chat with her today without further ado bless welcome to the show hi thank you thank you for having me yeah. And also to our listeners, if you want to go ahead and check out Bless's work right now, go ahead and check out her website, dot She's also on Instagram blessing poet and all the other socials as well. But I figured the website dot is a great way to get started to learn about her work and all that good stuff. So for starters, bless, I know that your publicist had reached out to us. So shout out to Kristen, but more importantly, when she brought it up to you, what compelled you to say, yes, I want
2: to be a part of the show and share my story. Oh, because just the name alone, the Filipino American Women Project, I said that's me. (laughs) I think that's me. I belong there. (laughs) Yes, you do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say, I'm really excited to have your perspective because I think often when people listen to our show, they often say, oh, it sounds like this is just a show for millennials. It sounds like we're just sharing perspectives of millennial panais. And that's not actually true. We may have started that way because Nani and I are millennials and we did a lot of our marketing through Instagram. But the reality is that, you know, we've had people reach out to us because they found us on Apple Podcasts, they found us on Google and, you know, we were able to get a wide range of... Of people wanting to share their stories. So I'm glad to have you on to add a different perspective, add a different, let's say, generation here. And one thing we were asking offline, because it's important for me to still you know, use honorifics, depending on who we're speaking to, depending on if you're older than me or not. And I remember we asked you offline, like, do you want us to refer you as auntie or ate? And you're like, just call me blessed. So tell us a little bit about that because with that alone, it makes me feel like you're just so welcoming and humble and you know, just excited to kind of be at the same level with us.
2: So tell us a little bit about like why you're okay with that, just us calling you blessed. Oh, that's an interesting question, I think, because now that you've mentioned it, I actually have to let you know that I have friends from all generations. Mm. It's like millennials, my latest I would say millennial friend, a very good friend. We became very good friends when she, I hired her as mm-hmm. my production manager on my last huge concert, which mm-hmm. I did as a promise to my mom, who passed away the year before, the year mm-hmm. prior. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. My homecoming concert in, in wow. my home city, in Naga City. That's in the Bicol region. Mm-hmm. And we became good friends. And she's not the only millennial who has become a close friend to me somehow I could relate to her very well. And then I noticed that my colleagues or my high school friends, I could relate to them easily too. So Mm -hmm. I don't really have so much distinctions between uh, generations as far as friendships are concerned. And I never thought of that until now that you've asked me the question.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And you know, this is me coming from a family where honorifics were really important. Like I make sure, you know, we call, you know, Lola, Lola, Lolo, Lolo, you know, auntie, uncle, you know, like that was very important. And, you know, even with my sister, she calls me ate. I mean, nowadays we sort of just, call each other sister because it's I don't know we just we just do and actually growing up she used to call me auntie like she used to pronounce it the wrong way for most of her life and then even when I started to get involved in the community outside of my you know family that was a big thing people would introduce themselves like oh hi I'm Tita someone you know or Tito so so and so but it wasn't even just the title it was kind of like the energy that came with it like I felt like yeah. I had to be a certain way around them and I couldn't disrespect them. I remember I had this client who he was, I mean, this was like years ago, but, you know, he was clearly, you know, much older than me. And I remember I said to him that I didn't want to continue our work together. And, you know, out of the blue, he said, you will respect me. Like he said that to me, he was like, you will respect me. I will sue you. Like he said this to me. And I was like, well, on paper, which we don't have
1: male ego much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And after that, I didn't talk to him ever again, but it's like, I have those experiences of like, just because you're older, I have to treat you a certain way. So that's where it's coming from for me. So the fact that early on, like, even though this is not a big deal to you, it's very fascinating to me to know that like, oh, you're cool with that. Because like you mentioned, you have a wide age range of friends. And I, I think that's powerful.
1: Well, I appreciate us having the conversation, you know, as a whole together, but also you coming in that way and just saying, no, just call me blessed. Because I think we're all used to doing that kind of like, Tiptoeing around when we first meet somebody, how should I approach you? How should I address you? I don't want to be disrespectful. And if I am calling you ate or auntie or tita, it's because I'm trying to be respectful. Mm -hmm. But then again, these days, you never know. Everyone feels differently about that. And you never know who it's going to offend. If you use the wrong honorific, you know, like, bless, we were talking about offline just before we started recording, if I call you Tita, but really, you're like, why are you not calling me Ate? Yeah, so (laughs) it gets confusing. And you know, I think that we're all coming from the same place of we just want to be respectful. and We want to make each other comfortable. And we want to Establish that kind of family feel that we have on this show, especially, but that comes in whatever form is most comfortable to you. So today we will just be referring to you as Bless, and thank you for kind of dismantling the hierarchy that's kind of ingrained in our culture that way, it is. Um, so that we can have a real conversation, you know, and get to the real meat of the content that you're going to be sharing today.
2: I'm very understanding. I really do understand where it's all coming from the roots that we share, the culture where we came from, even though I moved away from that culture for like decades now,
1: yeah.
2: it's still ingrained in me. So I understand that I guess because maybe of my personality and my value system, I'm very aware of boundaries in certain areas, but in titles and things like I'm very fluid. Yeah. 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 I'm very flexible. I just see the universe that's a better world for me if that is going to be my attitude, my personal. Yeah,
1: attitude. absolutely. And I think that that says a lot about your personality. It says a lot about some of what you've been through, you know, your experience. So we're excited to dive into that today.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And and I know this wasn't part of the questions we were going to ask, but thank you for entertaining it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Having this Starting off this it's conversation. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, this actually reminds me, I had a really good friend years ago who happened to be my hairstylist and I had met her when she was already in her seventies and it didn't feel like she was in her seventies. I mean, she was very youthful. She was involved in the community. She was, you know, putting herself out there. She, I mean, she was a hairstylist, so she still took care of herself and stuff like that. And and yeah, it was just so easy to talk to her. And it reminds me of, you know, what we continue to try to emulate here at the TIFA Project is just having open, candid conversations, despite like where you come from, like despite your background. It's like, if we can focus more on what we have in common, as opposed to what makes us different, I think the world would be a better place is how I see it. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> um, it
2: works both ways. Yeah. The differences Absolutely. make us interesting and the commonality make us blend together, you know, like we enhance each other. Yeah.
0: yeah I was, and one more thing I'll add to this is like, it's not like age groups are separate from each other, right? It's like <laughs> after high school, we all kind of blend in, right? Like we all just <laughs> kind of mix and match. So it is weird. Like that's why I remember how Conflicted, I felt with like, you know, we mentioned titles and honorifics, even in the community, because I was like, yes, you're telling me to respect you. But let's say when I talk to my white counterparts, it's not about the level of respect. It's about, I mean, the level of respect comes from earning it, It comes from how well you can communicate and articulate what you want and actually completing what you said you would do kind of thing. And you kind of earn your title in a sense that way and your respect in that kind of way. So again, it's just, it's an interesting conversation and obviously we're not going to spend the whole day talking about this. I'm just glad that we had opened up in this way. And again, like what Nani said, it really, it sets the tone for our conversation. So bless, as you know, when I asked you why you wanted to be on the show and you saw the name, the Filipino American woman, obviously that meant something to you. And I mean, you have so much life experience and I know that you've been all over like the world essentially, but you actually didn't leave the Philippines, I believe till you were about 22 years old. Right. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your family background and what it means for you to be a Filipino American woman who actually is not even in America right now, <laughs> so, but go ahead and talk about that.
2: Right. So at 22, I moved to America. Since I was 12, I already knew what I wanted to do all my life. And that's to be an artist, to be a writer, not just a writer, but a great writer, to be a performing artist, to be a musician. But I happened to be the eldest of seven mm-hmm. siblings. And my family was struggling. We're actually poor. I came from a poor background with seven children and with my parents, both working as just clerical positions and mm. a government agency, that really hardly supported all of our needs, especially higher educations. So they decided to impose on me to take up nursing and wow. forget about arts to the point where I think it's out of fear, of their fear, mm-hmm. that I wouldn't follow their advice, that since elementary grade, high school, and college, they forbid me mm. from joining extracurricular activities. Which that was my own personal happiness yeah. is to perform, to sing, you know, to be involved in any artistic activity, yeah. literary, even, you know. So I went to America at 22. I was a new nursing graduate with some experience in psychiatric nursing in University of Santo Tomas Mm -hmm. in Manila. And I ended up in Miami Beach on a contract. So I went there on a working visa. My parents paid the agency, and I think Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach paid my agent. So actually, she became very wealthy and and took, like, all these new graduates from the Philippines, including me, Hmm. in batches. Mm -hmm. In my own batch at the time, it was the late 70s -hmm. when I arrived in Miami Beach at midnight, you know, looking for a, after 30 something hours of travel with all the legs, you know, the uh, stopovers. Yeah. I arrived at about 12 midnight at the Miami International Airport and looking for a uniformed gentleman, a security guard who was holding a big sign with my name. Blasilo, Valencia, you know, that Mm -hmm. was my maiden name. And it was very, I would say, it was actually a very strange feeling. I felt like I was thrown in this strange land. You know, everything was new. Everything was unfamiliar. Culture shock. Yeah, yeah, culture shock and a lot of unexplained fear inside, even though I denied that because it was on a mission. So every month, my parents expected me to send certain amount of money to help them because by the time I started working in America as a nurse and sending money, this time my father already had a stroke and so he mm-hmm. was already disabled. So my mom at the time ended up being the sole provider mm-hmm. for the whole family. So that made a world difference. Yeah. Wow. A world difference. Sending money every month to my mom to help her out. And so they all finished their college degrees while I'm working, you know, as a nurse in the U.S. But I promised them I would stay there maybe two to three years. Well, I broke that promise mm-hmm. at a certain point because my fiancé then was waiting for me. So I went home after about maybe 13 or 14 months and got married. Back mm-hmm. to the Philippines. Back to the Philippines, you know, wow. and I had two children but things didn't turn out the way i expected it in my own naive mind that i thought you know all the romantic ideas that i had as a young bride as a young mother you know it didn't match the reality that i encountered mm-hmm. so i ended up deciding to go back leaving my 6 month old daughter wow and i think i mentioned that in the epilogue of In the Typhoon's Eye, because the book, the memoir, In the Typhoon's Eye, actually started when I was three years old, all the way up to when I was 22. And I ended it, the last page was the scene at the airport when I was leaving. So what I did, I decided to add a few pages of epilogue to fill in a little bit of gaps. And so that the readers, my readers would more or context. less have an idea of what happened in the U.S. You know, yeah. without, without the whole story, but mm-hmm. just to give a little bit of overview. So now, mm-hmm. because of that, I think anybody who had read my book already have been asking me now, when is the sequel coming out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it might be a really another project for me to do, to fulfill in the near future. I was just
1: thinking that I haven't had the pleasure, obviously, yet of reading your books, but I want to just because of how great of a storyteller I can already tell you are. And, you know, we read the background bit that you sent about your story. So I know that there's probably a lot that you've unpacked in that book. And it just seems like the theme of your life has been dealing with that disconnect between your idea of what you wanted for out of your life and what is actually the reality of what's happening around you. And so I think that that alone in itself without having gone into any detail yet is very inspiring. And yeah, I'm just on the edge of my seat wanting to (laughs)
2: learn more. (laughs) Thank you. you. I believe, I believe that I was born a poet. Hmm. And out of that for poetry and beauty As a young girl, between the age of three and four years old, I was already a lone player. You know, Mm -hmm. I played alone most of the time because I was the oldest. And also we were living in a remote barrio Mm -hmm. near the slopes of Mount Isarog in Biko. We were like in the flattened area between hills. So that was my environment. Mm -hmm. I remember I would be talking to the trees You know, pretend that I was a queen or a princess. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And all the birds, I would imitate them the Mm, way they sounded. And I would make up tunes in my head. And then when I see the clouds moving up in the sky, I always wondered where the angels were. Mm. And then I believed then as a kid that, oh, the angels were watching over me. So I I was never afraid, you know, going to the woods. I love that. Yeah.
1: You're a very imaginative kid. It sounds like.
2: (laughs) I also just
0: love a lot of the alone time you gave yourself because I imagine as the eldest of seven, there was a lot of pressure on you to be a lot of things to, you know, not just your parents, but even to your siblings. But the fact that you go off into the woods in a sense and, you know, have this time to yourself and your connection with nature and trying to sing like the birds in a sense. I mean, I imagine that was like a peaceful, serene, opportunity for you, right? To like have that time to yourself.
2: Yes, yes. And I think maybe those were the making of myself as an artist. Now that I look back, Mm -hmm. you know, at those times, I believe that I was born a storyteller. But I always wondered, I said, why did I wait this long, you know, decades from the time my dream was born? how come I waited this long? I really didn't wait this long. It's just that life happened to me. Yeah, And then I reflect on it now and then. And I said, okay, if I was born a storyteller, if I didn't live my life through all those decades, what stories would I tell? Right. Yeah. You have to let it unfold.
0: I'm curious to know, Bless, because One thing I had found with a lot of my friends, I think about my brother, for example. So, you know, just like with you, my mom had expectations for my brother to become an engineer. And, you know, he was kind of the techie guy in our house. He'd always fix our computer. Like he'd always knew how to like fix things in the house, mainly electronic related things. And so he naturally went to college for computer engineering. But by the time he was a junior and a senior, he switched to graphic design. I mean, for as long as I knew, especially since I was 10, when we lost dad, one thing I noticed about my brother was he would always just go off to his room and and do art, you know? So the fact that he kind of made that pivot, I mean, actually, I believe his last semester, at San Diego State University, not only was he invited to help teach class, a class or two, I think one class, but he got straight A's. It was like the first time, you know, he's ever gone straight A's. But I know that for, you know, a lot of us, some of us, we have to kind of suck it and do what our parents ask us to do. And I just want to share a little bit about like how far back your love for singing and poetry goes. I mean, you were five when you won your first prize for your dramatic monologue in a literary competition that was by a major radio station in the Philippines. And then at nine, you won first place in both solo and duet categories for a regional inter scholastic event in the Philippines. And so like, that's been ingrained in you very early on. So can you tell me a little bit about like what you had to do, like the resilience, the mantras you had to tell yourself to even like, let's say go through nursing school, because I don't think I would have been able to do what you did. Like I changed my major three times in college, you know, like I was like, I didn't have that. I don't know, drive or maybe my, what I really wanted to do was so much stronger than what even let's say my mom wanted for me. But can you tell us a little bit about like just that will to
2: do that and to, to see your nursing career all the way through at that time? You know, it's amazing. That's exactly the same question I asked myself. How did I do it? That's (laughs) right. Yeah. Internal conflict I had started from when my father took me by the hand to enroll me in that university in Naga City. Mm. And I was still hoping at those moments when he was taking me there that he would change his mind. I was like, Praying silently, like, I really want to take a course in arts and languages. But as soon as he put his foot down, I was devastated. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's one single source of happiness for me. Yeah. Because my, well, I'm not going to give away the contents of my book in the Typhoon's Eye, but I'll just give you this my childhood. The reason why I emphasize that that's one single source of my happiness as a young girl is because my home environment was so rigid and harsh that that was almost like my sanctuary. Like go to yeah. school, get because mm. that was like where where I found myself to be who I was supposed to be. I wanted yeah. to, and when I come back home, return home physically my home. That's when all the sadness began. So when it was finally decided I was going to take up nursing, I slowly, psychologically, mentally tell myself, you got to accept this. It's going to be temporary. It's going to be temporary. You can do it. And then, of course, I had a little reprieve for the first two years I received full scholarship because of my grades, I met the criteria, and I took away the burden, the financial burden, off my parents' shoulders, mm. because at the time they didn't have to pay tuition. Those were two years of enjoying the subjects, because they were all sciences, you know, psychology, philosophy, I mean, all the subjects that I loved. Yeah. It was not nursing per se yet. But on the third year of nursing, I was strongly tempted to sabotage it. But Mm -hmm. every time that thought came to my mind, my heart melted. And I said, no, I don't have the heart to do this. My parents worked so hard and pinned all their hopes on me for a better life for everyone in my family. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I just did what I usually do, get high grades. (laughs) But every time it was like, Nursing subject, like lab, yeah. you know the the nursing itself, the demonstration, the in services, the instructions done in the lab where you have to watch the patient, position the patient, take care of the catheter, or all those. I was like cringing inside, you know, yeah. uh, like oh my gosh, you know. I tell myself in my thoughts would be, this is not me, you know, this is not me, yeah. but I went along with it because of the way I felt bad for my siblings. I guess that's love. I also grew up in Catholic schools, high school through college, and self-sacrifice was such a big part of the indoctrination. Yeah. And the discipline, I guess I withstood all that sacrifice and self-deprivation of what I loved for myself all those years because... I had a lot of training from the rigorous discipline I received from my father. Yeah. Yeah. Postponement of wants, deprivation of yourself, of your personal wants, sacrifice. I had enough training. And maybe that's one of the keys why I graduated satisfactorily with cum laude (laughs) in nursing. (laughs) Well, Well, congratulations congratulations on that first. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I couldn't even believe I don't know how I did it, but I did it. Yeah, I think that
1: what you're describing here and the way that a lot of us are taught what love is is that utang nalaob. I think it's called, which is uh, yeah, which is something that we talked about, a Filipino psychology term from our interview with Dr. Abby, mm-hmm. which I think should be out now at the time mm-hmm. that you guys are listening to this interview, where she really goes into more depth on what that is and how it's really like a debt of will to our family and our loved ones. And so I think that comes with a lot of the self-sacrifice that you were just describing and kind of, oh, yeah, I know that this is not where my heart is or what I want to be doing or what I'm passionate about, but I have to because my family is in this position or I need to, you know, better someone else's circumstance. And that's where, you know, that mindset, whether it manifests itself in the form of like, becoming an OFW from the Philippines or going into nursing, you know, being even from here in America or doing whatever else it is that your family thinks that you should do. We're just trained in that way. We're brought up in that way to follow orders. And, you know, like we started this conversation out with the whole talk about honorifics and how Mm -hmm. you... Respect your elders. It's part of how we show respect to our family and our elders is to do, put our heads down and just do the work, you know, do what we're told. And I think eventually that comes back to bite us if it's not really what we want inside. And so, yeah, again, just kudos to you for making it through that. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I'm sure there was a lot that you went through in those three years through medical school that, you know, still sticks with you today. And it's just, pretty amazing to see how you've done a complete 180 from that point. And also I'm curious on what your relationship is with your own kids in that sense of like, everyone has hopes and dreams for their kids when they first have them, you know, and how do you like as a Filipino woman kind of come to terms with like, oh, this is what I see for them. But also how do I deal as it comes with the reality of what it is they want and what it is that their inherent nature is so
2: i think in that sense when i had my own kids and it was their time to choose what i wanted to do i was a few steps ahead mm-hmm. so when they were small what i did with a lot of sacrifices again we were on a tight budget you know i was a working nurse we had three children and we enrolled them in private school in a catholic private school which we were mm-hmm. a little bit naive i think their father at the time who is deceased now, we were a little bit naive. We were new into the culture. We took our first two children. One was two years old, and my oldest was three years old. Mm -hmm. And we enrolled them in an expensive... We didn't know at that time whether it was an expensive Catholic school. All I was thinking was, oh, Catholic school. Okay, because I grew up in a Catholic school. Right, Right. I wanted it for my children too, but I never regretted it because what I did... We became friends with the uh, pastor, the mm-hmm. parish priest, who was so generous when he knew that I had three children and I wanted them to be educated in that school. He cut the tuition fee for almost like 50 percent. Wow. wow. It was still high, but my God, 50 percent. So what I did, every time I had the time, I volunteered whatever service mm-hmm. I could find mm-hmm. you know, in the church. I did calligraphy wow. on the certificate, baptismal certificates. I cantered during the mass on Sundays and whenever they needed me. It was like I was living half of my home time. I was living in the church. Wow. I guess they gave us so much, I guess, charitable benefits uh-huh. or, or, or they were very kind to us because all my three children were also top of the classes, of their classes. So... They didn't take it for granted. They yeah, didn't really- that's beautiful. didn't take it for granted. Yeah. I, I did not take it for granted. And then what I did with my children, because I knew that, like you were saying, Nani, that what am I going to do as a Filipino mother or parent mm-hmm. when they start choosing what they want to do? What yeah. is it? So as young as they were, I started introducing them to classical music, you know, just influencing them a lot, you know, uh, planting the seeds. And then I was thinking to myself, well, whatever they choose, I must be able to let go of it. I must be able to mm-hmm. let go and leave mm-hmm. them be. Because I did my best already yeah. influencing them at an early age. Yeah, and right. So far, they're doing well right now. <laughs> yeah,
1: are they the in are the arts?
2: <laughs> um, no, three of them were playing concert music already, you know, at the wow. time. Because I dragged them all over Piano recitals, auditioning for honors recital, I mean, everywhere. And I don't even know how I did that because okay. I was working double shifts mm-hmm. and I was working also on my days off
1: mm-hmm.
2: in other hospitals whenever yeah. I could. So for some reason, I don't know, maybe I was I think- bestowed graces. <laughs>
1: Yeah, maybe it was just your love for the arts shined through you so much that it, you know, inevitably impacted them or influenced them, even if you weren't always intentional about it. You know, it just kind of happened naturally. So it's interesting, I think, as I'm eight months pregnant at the time of this recording. So I think that's something that's very top of mind is, you know, whether you mean to or not, you're, once your kid is here, you're constantly conditioning them. And what is that that they carry with them into their adulthood, or into when they decide where they want to go to college and what their major is, or what to do after school? You know, how much of that are they carrying from you versus how do you foster? You know, kind of the opposite of what a lot of our family experiences are and carrying those expectations or cultural expectations from our families.
2: I guess I did a little bit of the opposite,
1: yeah,
2: kind of letting go because I already experienced the other approach. Yeah. So it was good for them. Right. But still, I had all those thoughts, like I told you, so I I went ahead and, and and made sure that I was several steps ahead. When they were young, I already influenced them or like exposed them to this to that, you know, the culture, the arts, and yeah, uh, they did took piano lessons, you know, the three of them, but only one majored in music. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Only one. She was also a scholar, you know, in a conservatory and graduated with honors. And it's a full-fledged composer, a composition major. Wow. But only one. The other two stopped playing. And one of them, who is now now a very successful career person, my middle child, the one I left at Mm six-month-old years and years ago, she is blaming me now, like teasingly blaming me. Mom, why did you allow me to stop playing piano? I remember. Mm. You see how the psychology—you <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> can't win either way. You know way, what? Huh? That, that reminds <laughs> me. Um,
0: I remember I had a, a good friend where you know, kind of in a similar situation. She like gave her sons everything, and one of them in particular, the elder one, I think, even before he graduated high school. He had already been all over the world. And we were on, this was like years ago, we were on a trip to the Philippines and we were just kind of talking. And she said like, you know, my son really resents me because he said that I gave him everything and now he doesn't know what he wants because I gave him everything.
1: And I'm yeah, like, there's just no right answer to parenting.
0: <laughs> no. Too much on the menu, right? It's like you yeah. yeah, like you got in everything. Like, I mean, it wasn't even just traveling the world. Like he had other opportunities as well. And yet he was blaming his mom for way too many opportunities. I was like, yeah. I
1: think I was- there comes a point in our lives where we just feel that way. Like, even if there's nothing there, we find the resentment <laughs> yeah. for our parents. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious.
0: I feel like there's going to be a time in my life where like if I have kids and they start to enter that stage, cause I definitely had that rebel. We all have, right. We all had that rebellious stage with our parents. And, you know, I think, when- I think that when that time comes with my kids, I'll probably just like I don't know. It disappeared for a while. I was like you know, what? I'm just gonna be traveling, and then you can yeah. blame me all you want, but I won't be here. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know.
2: I don't know. I won't know They'll until we cross that Yeah. We'll be like... forced to find our way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly yes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's that's interesting. You know, when you're talking about parenting now mm-hmm. or parenting issues or or experiences, there was a time. Because my mother lived with me for 28 years Mm -hmm. in America. Wow. Yes. Wow. 28 years. I was very close to my mom. She handed me. It was from her that I inherited this intense love for music. Mm. If my mom was alive and she'll talk to you about music, she'll talk to you forever and ever. She won't stop (laughs) talking When, when the topic is music. She was always a champion in singing and my voice is not anywhere near her voice. It's a totally different voice, very powerful. And she said that, so when I started even uh, doing concerts, you know, in theaters, and my mom was there, she told me that she was, she was living vicariously through me. In mm. my, everything. She said, it's a dream. It's my dream, my life that I never had. She yeah. would always tell me that, yeah. But what reminded me now is the parenting issue. Mm-hmm. When I became a widow, I was 39. Mm-hmm. Of course, I was raising, I had no choice but to raise by myself, two teenagers mm-hmm. and one barely nine-year-old, my youngest. So my oldest is a boy. He's a man now. He's <laughs> a young man. And then two girls. Mm-hmm. Then the teenage issues started to Oh, up, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. We attitude, we didn't listen, mm-hmm. we we'll did the opposite of what they knew was included in your value system. They knew that, but they'll do the opposite anyway, or something of else. Yeah. And uh, testing. So one day I was alone in my house. They were all with their friends. There was like, it was a sudden epiphany, you know, like, ah, oh, I am not, I am not using parenting style that I experienced from my parents, I will create my own. So Mm. it was almost like experimental, but real, because I implemented it right away. Mm -hmm. I decided I was going to create my own parenting style based on how they are, their age, and based on the presence of our cross-cultured home environment. Yeah, wow. Because here it is, here's on one side, there's my mom, another generation, here was I. (laughs) <laughs> and then my children mm-hmm. you know, the other generation so we're all in the house and i had to find a balance it was very fine balance between my mom's perceived unacceptable behavior of my children mm. and my own perspe- my own perspective
0: mm-hmm.
2: so i decided you know what i'm going to do a different style i'm going to be be very level with them i'm going to talk to them it will be like talking and then I will create certain rules when they're out of the house. And I never included rules that I knew I couldn't impose. So mm. it was in between, not strict, but like it's almost, you think externally, if you were observing us, I was very much liberal. Yeah. But not really. I had my own backup plan all the Ready. time. Yeah. Backup plan all the time. And the one philosophy that I followed in my parenting skill because of that situation, being a single parent and being cross-cultured at home, what I did is I made sure that when I explained to them my rules, I expected them to follow it mm-hmm. and I made them feel all the time that I trusted them 100%. Mm. Yeah, that's
1: important. I Otherwise, they don't them. understand why. Exactly. And right. it, yeah.
2: it really worked. Yeah. And of course, I get some heat from my mom because my mom thought I was so liberal. You
0: know? <laughs> and, you know, I'm wondering if this has a lot to do with, you know, raising kids and in American society. I mean, the key word you use there is explained. You explained. You know, well, first of all, you had a conversation with them and you explained what you wanted. And I like how you extended your trust to them because I think it makes them feel like they're part of the decision making process. And I love that you did that because I can only imagine, like, maybe how free that also made you feel, knowing that you're not like micromanaging them or being that helicopter mom. You know, it gets me to think about, you know, my mom when she was a widow, I mean, we were like 11, 10, and five, like, we were all pretty young. And so, you know, at this time, my mom, you know, it wasn't about practicing conversation and dialogue. It was about provide, you know, it was provide and have a roof over the head. And so as we started to get older, I think that because she was so focused on working, I don't think she saw us grow up. You know, I don't, I don't think she noticed like us formulating our own thoughts and opinions and personalities and, and stuff like that. So that, you know, I remember in my teens, part of my rebellious act with my mom is that like, I would just, I would yell at her because I realized after a while, like she wasn't, actually having a conversation with me. She kept saying the word should, you should do this. You should do that. You know, you should go to this school. You should, Oh, if you go to this school, you should study this. Oh, you're not studying that. You should like, I, I first majored in psychology, even though of course she probably wanted me to be a nurse, but she was like, Oh, okay. you should get your PhD. So you could be considered a doctor, you know? And then I changed my major again. Oh, you should like get your bachelor's degree so that you could become an officer in the Navy. You know, like she just kept saying should and shouldn't should and should And I'm thinking if it's because like maybe to your fortune, like your eldest was already a teenager who already had thoughts and opinions and a personality that you can have this conversation where I think with my mom... I think there was a point where she, and this is not to bash her, it's to just kind of understand where she's coming from. It's like, she raised us at a time where we needed to look to her as the leader, as the provider and stuff like that. And I think she kind of kept at that until she became an empty nester. And, you know, now we're all doing really well. Mom's great. She's also in her sixties and we all have a wonderful relationship today. Like we're all pretty candid about our lives with her. We're doing great, but I think about at that time, like how difficult it was To just feel heard by her, you know, to just be like, mom, why this, why that? And she would just, you know, kind of stonewall me. And if I yelled, she would especially stonewall me. So I like listening, you know, and I know Nani asked the question, but I'm learning too, just from you sharing your story of how you're, how you took care of your kids at that time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I like the different perspectives too, Jen, because your Mm -hmm. mom was also widowed at that time, you know, Mm -hmm. from when you guys were a young age, you were 10 or 11, I think around that age. Yeah. And then you're the middle child. So I think that especially as like the eldest sibling, you're the middle child, but you're the oldest girl, mm-hmm. right? And then for bless, bless was the eldest of all seven. And so I think yeah. that in Filipino families, specifically, the eldest child or especially the eldest daughter is kind of looked at as like, the third parent or the second parent in those cases. And so it is kind of coming back to that utong ub that's like, The debt of the will to the family. Yeah. 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 And so it's interesting to have the different perspectives from both sides, I guess, Mm -hmm. of similar situations. Similar. Very similar.
2: Yes. And it was difficult. There was a time, there was about maybe five years that after I became a widow, my oldest child, my son, did not talk to us. And we were all living in the same house. He stopped talking to us. So Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't break the wall. So it, I don't know how we did it, but we're in a better place right now. We're, we're really, oh, God. Yeah. very strong relationships. You know, I have four grandchildren. Wow. Congratulations. My mom. So my mom's still alive. waiting on us. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it makes it feel so alive, you know, uh, that, that part of my life. And yeah, we know each other's intimate you know thoughts and my daughter especially would share with us yeah and my son you know came around yes doing very well uh and he's single that's the only prayer that's remaining right now for me (laughs) besides health and safety i'm praying for him to find (laughs) it
0: I, I wonder if it's because you set the standard for what he should be looking for. You know what I mean? Like maybe mm. your dynamic, your relationship, like maybe that's what it is. Like, mm-hmm. like, that's my theory. But I am curious to know because for me, it took me, so I'm in my young 30s now, but in my late 20s, that was around the time when I really started to understand my mom and all the sacrifices that she made. And I made a decision. Like, it was interesting because I remember telling myself at this point where, and they, like I mentioned, this is like years ago, but I said, I said like, you know, my mom hasn't changed. My mom is still very the same, but I've changed and I, I could see her differently. Now I could see the sacrifices she made. And because of that, I got to a place in my life where I just loved her for who she was, not what I wished she could have been, you know, like I was so focused on, oh, I wish my mom could be more emotionally invested in me. You know, I wish that she can give me your undivided attention. I wish this, I wish that. But when I got to a place where I was like, well, mom's love language is acts of service. Like she provided, she, you know, there was always food on the table when we came home. She was always the first one there for sick or had to pick us up from school. Like that to her was a form of love. And so I'm curious with your kids, like did you kind of realize when that turning point was for them to like to come to you and now you have this, you know, amazing fruitful relationship with them? I think
2: it's probably the process stand for, Happened slowly but surely and spanned for like maybe a decade. Mm. When they were becoming young adults and then yeah. they started dating, mm. and they were open to me at the time already because I really enforced my new parenting style. Yeah, and I, yeah. I was so convinced that it was gonna work and it worked. Yeah, yeah, because I didn't want to lose the connection with my children.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I think that that says a lot too, you know, at least with Filipino moms, in my opinion, the openness of that communication, like on both ends, kind of explains, you know, I'm setting these rules, especially to a young teenager who just wants to break rules for the sake of breaking rules. Right. <laughs> so I think that having that open communication and explanation of like why this is a rule, it's not just me mm-hmm. trying to control what you do or you know, like make your life a living hell. It's me, you know, trying to teach you at the same time as I'm giving you your own agency to learn how to navigate the world by yourself. And so I think that that maybe is from what I took about your relationship with your dad, kind of your way of breaking that generational cycle in parenting your own kids. And instead of, Him kind of instilling that debt of will in you to do what he says, you know, for the sake of him and the family. It was you loving them in your own way and trying to convey a different message.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes,
1: yes, yeah.
2: It was an extremely conscious effort on my part because, yeah, I believe that the way we were parented or the way we were raised always spills over to the next generation. Exactly on our impulses,
1: right? You know, if we continue pulsions. it, mm-hmm.
2: right, and then it will never cut, for example, abuse, mm-hmm. physical yeah. abuse, emotional abuse, and I had those impulses, you know, to enforce corporal punishment. And every time that impulse came up, because mm-hmm. you know, you get frustrated, you get angry, you know, at them when they're not listening. Yeah. I stopped myself. And it was such a process. It was such an internal process.
1: Yes. That is something that I'm thinking of now. It's like, I'm always asking all the moms that I meet and know, like, what is your take on spanking? (laughs) Like, do I spank my kid or do I not spank my kids? I got spanked, but also I understood at the time that I was getting spanked because it was out of love. It wasn't like, I thought that my grandma was trying to hurt me. You know, I wasn't scared of her or threatened by her, but I understood that it was you know, like a consequence to an action, and that it was out of love that she was trying to teach me something. It wasn't that she was, you know, so I think that I don't know how she got that across to me at such a young age, you know, but I think that if you're able to do that, then it's one story. But if you're not able to do it, then it just ends up being extremely traumatic. And you're just repeating these like, cycles that these kids carry with them, like you said, throughout the rest of their lives. So I think that that's always an interesting conversation and will be an internal process for me to work through as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, believe me, before my conscious, you know, discovery and effort happened, believe me, I spanked my kids when they were little. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah. I have the green light. <laughs> uh, no, I, I did. I spanked, but it was like conscious also. The action Right. And I knew in my mind, what was going on is that, okay, this is going to be because you did this, you did that, you know, but then there was a point where, you know what, this is not really what I wanted to do. Right. So I that kind of faded. And yeah. now when I look at them, how they are raising my grandchildren said, oh, no, Mom, we, we don't enforce any of those physical, we talk mm. to them. And I noticed, I observed them mm. talk at an early age. I said, oh my God three-year-old, four-year-old, and they do listen to their Mm. mothers. (laughs) Well, good. That gives me hope. I hope I'm able to do
1: that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I hope I can communicate that way. (laughs) You do. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love it.
0: Awesome. Well, obviously, Bless, I feel like we can talk to you forever because you have so many stories and I feel like you've lived so many different lives. And obviously, people can learn more about you when they check out your books and read your memoir as well as your poems. And so what I want to do now is I keep thinking about that time you know, in your twenties, when you really had to focus on becoming a nurse and being a nurse and, you know, just being primarily focused on your family, which by the way, it really resonated with me with how you sort of just told yourself you had to accept this reality because, you know, without sharing too much myself. And I talk about this on Chismas with Jen and Nani now with Nani and I kind of reveal a lot of my personal life in the recent years. I feel like I'm in a place right now where I do have to just Like for me, my escape is my career. Like, like what I do in podcasting, what I do in my work with my husband, like, it feels like that's my escape because other aspects of my life are just out of my control, (laughs) like, like in a sense. So I just, I really appreciate you sharing that part of your life. Now, when did you kind of arrive to this place? Cause obviously like, I'd like to say a happy ending did come for you, you know, but when was that pivot for you to be like, I'm going to pursue my dreams again. I'm going to pursue what I wanted since I was like three,
2: (laughs) like, when did that point come for you? Okay. It came actually unexpectedly. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was a widow. I was a single parent. I've been a single parent for 10 years Mm. before I married my second husband, my current husband. Mm -hmm. So my children were growing up. I was finding myself more often alone than not. Wow! And they were making their own schedules that no longer included me. And I thought, wow. So one day, I was passing by, I always passed by this conservatory in South Florida. It's called New World School of the Arts. Mm. Conservatory, it's a very rigorous program for music and arts and dance, ballet, drama, opera, you know, everything. I thought, wow, what must it be like, you know, to be part of this? You know, Mm -hmm. just a fleeting thought. So I passed by again. And the last time I passed by, driving by that school, I made a decision I said, you know what, I'm going to audition. And at the time, if I remember right, I think I must be 44 years old Mm. at the Mm -hmm. time. Okay. But that's after I've been called by my friends and colleagues, Mary Widow, because that's the time my life is kind of upside down. Like If you think about the faces of our lives as women, Mm -hmm. because I married young. I never really dated like young guys before I got married. I married my first, you know, my first, first lover, first love. So, so when I became a widow, that's the first time I ever experienced real dating. And I thought, wow, why are these men pursuing me? But I love the attention, you know? (laughs) Yeah, because well, you it's sing well, you write well, you're pretty. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> first time I've ever exposed myself to social activities. I never had a social <laughs> life when, when the kids were young. Never. I just yeah. go to my work, to the hospital, then to church on Sunday, and then mm-hmm. groceries, grocery mm-hmm. shopping. That was the first time I thought, well, my kids are not with me. They're with their friends all the time, you know, yeah. and then it's me and my mom. And my mom had her own circle of friends. Mm. And that was good. My mom was happy. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do volunteer work. So I started joining groups. And that's how my social life actually began. Wow. In your 40s? In my 40s. Wow. My favorite, by the way, just to insert it here, right here, my favorite times of my life was in my 40s and 50s. That was, I felt yeah because like, that's when you had your time to yourself and nobody
1: was yes. holding you to expectations you weren't supposed to be anywhere for anybody
2: you were just doing <laughs> no. what you wanted to do yeah and this young guys you could not believe that they I don't think they had any idea how old I was so they, <laughs> they just wanted to take me to dinner to they lunch, didn't care to the movies, yeah you the, the show to theater whatever you know <laughs> love it so, I love it I love the attention. And I thought... Yeah, it sounds like a great time. (laughs) I said, so this is how socialization feels. I was talking to myself, right, Mm -hmm. in my mind. So that was the best time of my life. By the even better time, one of the best highlights of my life is when I audition and I get accepted with scholarship Mm. in the conservatory. And uh, I was with this 18-year-olds, you know, music majors. I mean, great musicians, you know some of them played in the orchestra some were you know singing operas and all Mm -hmm. that and but before i auditioned i actually enrolled in a private music institute Mm -hmm. you know to just have vocal training because i loved classical singing Mm -hmm. so after four years of that i joined recitals that were of course you know required i was not satisfied something was missing i said I need to learn how to read music. I need to understand symbols. I need to understand this, that. That's what pushed me to audition. And I thought to myself, well, even if they don't accept me, the experience of auditioning, whether rejected or, or accepted, you know, it's fine. I already prepared myself, but I was shocked when the letter of acceptance came. <laughs> 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 That's amazing
0: amazing. That's, that's like, so
2: inspiring to know that,
0: yeah. you know, cause I'm here like in my thirties and I was recently thinking like, Oh man, I feel like I've wasted some years of my life because of A, B and C. And, you know, I tell this to Nani quite often, especially as she's about to become a mother. I love having mom friends because like, I'm so inspired by moms such as yourself, like live a totally different life once, you know, once no one needs you, you know, it's like, yeah. it's never too late. To start over is what I'm hearing. Like, there's gonna be different versions of yourself, different seasons of yourself. And, you know, it may not be the season you wanna be in right now, but like, as long as you have that goal in mind from the very early stage, that passion, you know, for you, for, you know, when it comes to writing and singing, it's like, it's just so amazing how that may not have manifested in your, you know, your teens, your 20s, your 30s. But it did
2: in your 40s. But it did in my 40s. And I love my 40s and 50s. It's it's one of the best times in my life. Even when I look at pictures, uh, photos, I said, I even said to my husband right now, I said, I really look my best in my 40s, like 40s, 50s, look at this, you know? (laughs) But well, you know, that's the physical aspect of, you know, beauty or looks, you know? youth, Youth always enhances the looks. So your question Mm-hmm. was how did I, so unexpectedly, right? So that was yeah. when I got reconnected. It's, it's kind of like my childhood dream sneaks up on me. Yeah. So I dropped everything. At the time, I had an excellent job as director of nursing mm-hmm. in a residential facility of Ryan White program recipients. Mm-hmm. So I was director of nursing in this whole big facility of 250 bed capacity, Mm. And it was such an excellent job. I loved it. I gave it up Mm. because when I get accepted into the program, I had to find a night job so I could be in school during the day. Yeah. It was very rigorous and very exclusive that sometimes there would only be eight people in a class. So there was Mm. no choice of schedules. It's only one schedule and you just have to follow it. Make it it work. Yeah. Right. Make it work. I was there by 7 a.m., I had to wake up at 6 to be at school at 7 a.m. I finished like around 3 o'clock. By 4 p.m., I had to be at my job for night shift. Mm. So by 12.30 in the morning, my shift ended. Wow, I had to go home. I would be sleeping maybe around 1 o'clock, one thirty, and by 6 o'clock, I had to be up. And I did oh. that for for at least two years or a little more. Oh, my goodness. Ooh. That's dedication. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know, your parents taught you that. When you were young. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Blinders on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, people, my friends call me, bless. It, it's really crazy, your schedule.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure it was also different because you were actually enjoying what you were doing. Oh, yes. So you look forward to going. It's not like you were oh, waking yes. up at those hours dreading going to school oh, no. or going to class. You were, you know, excited. And this is the first time that you're able to really invest in yourself.
2: Yes. It was heavenly. Yeah. That's what I would describe it. But mm. so that was the start. And even before I was accepted in the school, I was already given the opportunities to produce shows, like in a theater, for wow. like fundraising, because I was very involved in volunteer work in the community, mm. in the local community in North Miami. So I had that feel already that, hey, I can do this. So I produced, directed, even before I went to the school. So that school happening, blessing, whatever you call it, mm-hmm. that was just, I guess, a reinforcement on my right direction
1: mm-hmm.
2: in my mind. Yeah. So, yeah. So after that, I've been pursuing performances. Anywhere, anywhere, any opportunity that arose, I took it. And so what I would say, 18 years, I was juggling in two careers. I was juggling two mm. careers, two major mm. careers, one in performance in the arts. And then I was still working full time mm-hmm. as a nurse. Mm. And I kept praying for many years, almost one decade. I said, please give me a sign when I'm going to give up one. Because mm. it was, it was, it was a lot. It was. Yeah. And yeah. then I got married to my current husband and he took me, uprooted me from everything familiar. So oh. that was, Another layer of challenge. Yeah. Every three years since 2005, we've been living in different countries. So every oh, wow.
1: posting,
2: yeah, every posting they had, I follow him and I become a stranger every time. Mm-hmm. So oh. I didn't know anybody and no one knew me. So there was another layer of challenge as an artist. But oh, yeah. somehow I made friends every place I went. My first ever... The debut performance on stage for a full two-hour concert of singing happened in Bangkok and Thailand Cultural Center. Wow. Where uh, the famous opera singers, where I've seen them perform, uh, they're retired now, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kiriti Kanawa, Renee Fleming, you know, some others, they have performed in that theater too in Thailand wow. Cultural Center. Wow. But it was so significant for me. And I think after that debut performance, I told myself, you know what? I can do this again. So, mm. so I've been doing it. <laughs> yeah. And um, it. that's how I went back. Or should I say, it came back to me. Yeah. My childhood dream. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that. I can say that right now I'm living my dream life. I say that because I consider myself now a full-time artist Mm-hmm. Which I've yes. Been really <laughs> yes you <laughs> have a
0: publicist
2: <laughs> <laughs> since 2019 I took all the courage within me and wrote the letter of resignation mm. to the company whom I've been working for for like nine years of remote consulting and I knew I was going to lose my regular income as mm-hmm. an nurse consultant but you know the courage I would say to everyone, you know, you got to have that courage. And I acknowledge my fear of the unknown, but I did what I love anyway. I gave it up 2019. And so I wrote my book during the pandemic. Yeah. Yes. Congratulations
1: on that. I think that a lot of people that are, you know, stuck in that space still of doing you know, keeping the secure job or the stable job that brings you, you know, the money that you need to pay your bills or send back to help your family, the benefits that you need, you know, all the things that your parents want for you. But you know, it's really not what you want to do. I think that's the, the number one question is like, well, how do I not do this? You know, how do I how do I transition into doing what I love? And that's, you know, also something that I deal with today, too, is how do I establish myself as a writer with with no real professional background in writing, essentially, Um, you know, I've worked in corporate America for over 10 years now, and I feel very much stuck in that, even though I work on other projects outside of that, like this podcast, and I have a blog and all those things, where I do try to establish myself, but it's like, how do you Kind of get to the point where I can give up my day job to do this full time. And so I think that that is your story is a great outline of how you do that. Mm-hmm. And really just using that work ethic that was instilled in you maybe for to complete someone else's idea of what you should be and really rechannel it into, you know, working for your own dreams and to achieve your own dreams. And that for a while, it is going to look kind of hard and it is going to be a sacrifice in one way or another whether it's your time your energy you know your ability to do other things but eventually if you put in your hours and you put in enough work and it will pay off and you'll be able to quit that day job or to quit whatever it is that you feel stuck in and really go full throttle with your own dream
2: yes yeah you will know because you will be given signs I call them signs but yeah It's between your intuition and your conviction and your desire. Mm. For me, my love for the arts far outweighed my fear. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. So So it kind of manifested itself.
2: Yeah. 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 But still a process. You know, it took me years before I finally, but it was a big sacrifice to do both. Yes. But But I did it for at least 18 to 19 years.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's the important point to note, too, is that, you know, you do have to kind of grind a little bit. It's not just yes. thinking the thoughts and having the dreams and talking about them that's going to manifest them. It's actual, like, intentional action intentional. that it takes and, you know, some sort of sacrifice in one way or another. It's not an easy thing. It's not some magical thing that just happens no. and falls in your lap.
2: Yeah. No, it's it requires a lot of work and focus and determination, and once you make a decision, standing by it and really not doubting yourself at all.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean,
2: mm. self doubt doesn't helpful. help. Yeah, not, not helpful. You, you gotta go f- full 100 percent, you know, yeah. believe in yourself.
0: Yeah, and when you say self doubt, I also think about like unpacking that self-doubt, right? It's like, where is that self-doubt coming from? You know, I think a lot of us, it, it goes back to that familial, um, just what Nani was, kept saying, and I can't pronounce it, the utang nalo loob.
1: Yes, help us out. Utang
0: <laughs> na.
2: Utang. Okay. Utang nalo Na, one, 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 one word. That's a preposition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Na loob. Okay. Utang na. Utang na loob. Lo Utang o-. na la ob. Ob. Yeah, because in Filipino language, mm-hmm. two vowels next to each other, it has to be pronounced as two individual vowels. Mm, so I, I tell my husband the same thing because he's American, right? So I yeah. would say, ob. no, I said no, lo-ob. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Utang na lo Love. perfect. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay, I Dennis, use
0: that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you can keep my mistakes. It's fine. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so the self-doubt thing is like, like unpacking it, really sitting with yourself, like, where's that coming from? Like, why do I feel like I owe this to my family? Or Why do I feel like I have to do this for my family before I do something for myself kind of thing? And I think like it's unpacking that and then knowing where to go from there, because even you know, in your twenties, bless when you were focused on, you know, being a nurse and providing for your family, there was no self-doubt because you knew your situation. And then you knew what you needed to do with that situation. You're like, this is what I got to do. I'm, I'm the eldest of seven. I got to take care of my family. Like I got to do this. No self-doubt. Like, even though I still am an artist, you know, deep inside, this is what I have to do right now. And I like that I like that conviction because you do have to get to a point where, you know, you can't be standing in two boats at once. You got to pick one for a certain while, and maybe that other boat will come back later in life. You don't know. But the point is that you can't live in that self-doubt. You can't live in that kind of limbo state for too long because not only does it hurt you, it hurts everyone else around you. Right. And so at least in this situation, it's like, I mean, not at least, but I just, I appreciate hearing your story because even when I think about my own personal situation right now, it's, it's like, I'm glad that. I may not have everything I want, but like, I know that I chose what I'm doing right now for a very strong reason. And I'm going to stand by it until something else comes up, until another opportunity comes up. So I just find that very inspiring. And I've really enjoyed, you know, just listening to your story today.
1: I think that that is sums it up beautifully, too.
2: Yeah, I I just want to acknowledge another reason why maybe another reason why I wrote the book it's not just to tell my story, to hand it to my children and my grandchildren and the future. It's also a gesture for me to honor my parents, mm. even though a lot of the sadness in my childhood was caused by maybe mainly my father, as I wouldn't go into details right now because it's mm-hmm. all in my memoir. Mm-hmm. Because whatever he did, if we had some... Harsh experiences as little children, you know, in my home. Uh, I still believe deep inside me that everything my father did with my mother was still an expression of a love mm-hmm. that maybe only, only he knew. Yeah. Yeah. At the time I didn't look at it, I didn't see it as love. Yeah. But I still want to honor them.
0: So. Yeah. No, I think that's beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing that. It, You know, I think at the end of the day, we're all trying to do our best with what we know. Yeah. You know, I think about, let's say my exes, like I think about my college sweetheart. I call my college sweetheart. I think about like when we ended up breaking up, like I thought about all the faults that we had in that relationship. And I remember eventually coming to a place of peace and saying, you know what? We loved each other the best that we could at that time. Like he, his own knowledge of love and my own knowledge of love. That's why we were together for too long. But, you know, I think that's kind of what I hear you saying is like, you know, obviously people can read more about this in your memoir in the typhoon's eye. But what you're trying to say is that you're honoring your parents because that's what they knew at that time. You know, parents are humans too, right? (laughs) And we're all just humans that happen to have to take care of other people. And we're going to try to do our best. And there's no perfect parental manual out there to do it. And I, I imagine that that puts you in a place of peace as well to forgive your dad you know, for whatever yeah. he had put you through. Which again, y'all can check it out in her mm-hmm. memoir, In the Typhoon's Eye, available at Amazon. But thank you for sharing and, that. And Liz. Barnes
2: & Noble and all major bookstores, mm-hmm. online bookstores, they're, they're available both in digital copies and paperback. Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. that I just pretty want to thank you both, Nani and Jen. You're wonderful. I mean, it's yes. so wonderful. It's great talking to you about everything we talk about. (laughs) Yes. Thank (laughs) you. Bless. Thank you for being so easy to
1: talk to, for sharing so much of yourself with us today and really leaving us with that message for our community on making peace, you know, Mm -hmm. because I think we talked a lot today about parenting and the impacts of, you know, influence that our parents have had on us, whether it was intentional or not, and to really do what we do today, whether it's what they want us to do or not out of honor for them, And Mm -hmm. making peace with those intentions that we know that they had that came out of love, even if it was in weird, twisted, toxic (laughs) ways. And, you know, also acknowledging that sometimes we are the ones that uphold those toxic ways. So we're all human. Nobody's perfect. And we love our families, I think, is the point. And we want to, you know, break those generational cycles and patterns in order to be able to communicate that better. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, Bless, thank you again so much for your time. And to our listeners, if you want to reach out to Bless, her website is theblesssingingpoet.com. She's also on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Instagram is Bless Singing Poet. And yeah, I think that's it. We just want to thank you all so much for being part of our community and being a part of this conversation. Remember, you could always reach out to us via text for 484 8329 or email Nani and I, nani at tifaproject.com or jen at tifaproject.com. All right. We love you all. And we'll chat with you in the next episode. Tune in next time. Thank
2: you so much. Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you. Bless.